0: Hi, I'm Susie Lau. I'm a fashion journalist, and this is Made to Last, the first ever podcast from Mulberry, the British label known for the beautiful leather pieces it has been creating for the past 50 years. When Mulberry invited me to host a podcast about leather, to showcase the goals set out in their Made to Last Manifesto, I saw it as a chance to discover more about the material and answer some questions. The Mulberry Made to Last Manifesto was launched a year ago as a commitment to transform the business to a regenerative and circular model with the aim of achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2035. I myself love leather and have no intention of giving it up. But what I would really like to find out is, can we love this material in a way that is responsible? In this series, I'll be talking all things leather, because that's what Mulberry's all about. I'll be hearing from everyone from leather lovers to industry insiders, as well as the people asking the difficult questions about the material, driven by environmental concerns. I'll also be asking, why do we love leather so much? How did it become so highly valued in the fashion industry? And how can it bring about positive change if we support regenerative farming practices? Episode one, how leather became desirable. In this episode, we're asking how and when did leather become a luxury commodity? First up, I'm talking to Judith Watt, a fashion historian who combines teaching at Central St. Martins in London with writing brilliant books on the likes of Ozzie Clark and Alexander McQueen.
1: I think leather, because it is so versatile and has, comes from so many different animals, let's not ever forget it's the skin of an animal, it's always been desirable it's been it's always had practical uses but in the kind of very diversity of how it's been used I mean it's you know leather soft leathers were used to make patches for women to wear as kind of beauty marks and a, a kind of language of patches in the 18th century mm. um, and then it was used for it was used for saddles that it was used for Breeches. Um, it was used for armour. Um, it's incredibly varied, and I think that there's always been a certain snobbery around the kind of leather that one wore. In fifty58 for example, when Elizabeth first, first came to the throne, um, one of the first things that Parliament decreed was that there should be a law against mixing, ki- mixing different kinds of leather. So the word for oxide or cattle was neat, a neat's leather. Shakespeare uses it in Julius Caesar as a pun. It's about, you know, good appearance. So the shoemaker uses neat's leather. He has a neat product. But uh, it was decreed that you could not mix that leather with uh, pieces of other leather or scrapings from other hide. So it had to be pure already that had been um, introduced way back in the uh, 16th century, which is quite late. I mean, the earliest that I have seen of shoe shoe as an item of luxury is from from 600 BC, and it's on a vase... um, in the Ashmolean Museum, where you have a shoemaker or cobbler cutting out a skin around a young boy's foot to make the sole of the leather. And this boy is an aristocrat. So this is a desirable object being made by a craftsman. So, you know, different hierarchies of shoe wear, but, dif- you know, the idea of a beautiful leather shoe goes back six. At least 600 okay. BCE. Okay. You, I'm look, you can look at this stuff in a really dry way in the history of dress, or you can look at it and think, God, that's fascinating, isn't it? Well, How it's weird. a
0: raw, quite visceral yes.
1: material.
0: Yeah. And it is, yeah, literally you're wearing a, a another, a, another creature's skin. Yes. So specifically with British luxury leather goods, how would you describe that kind of evolution? Like in terms of, it, in Britain, leather as a luxury item?
1: Well, it certainly, um, in terms of luxury, it certainly goes back to the 18th century, in terms of leather being applied onto trunks. And the, the most expensive leather you could get would come, would come from Spain. But the main influence came from France, if we're talking about the 20th century. And it's very much to do with sporting culture. Mm. Um, And if you look at men's dress in particular in the 18th century, sporting dress, the idea of leather breeches, for example, very, very important. But leather is very durable. Yeah. Really, really durable. So you'd rework it and rework it. When I'm thinking of luxury, luxury... If you look at a, a leather bag for example, a leather object. Its beauty is in its pattern, isn't it, and Mm. its finish. Um, And in the 19th century, certainly in 1805, with Beau Brummel and the idea of, and certainly dandyism, Dandyism. the immaculate nature of everything, but certainly wearing uh, Hessian boots that were of impeccable leather but did not smell of the stables that would be polished using soot blacking made from champagne is interesting, right? Because if you look at most of the leather goods, it's to do with horses, Mm. isn't it? It's to do with riding, it's to do with sporting, Mm -hmm. it's to do with that culture and travel. I just want to flip back to something. This idea of of leather and the the sanitization, as it were, that you see in luxury goods. Um, The the, the center for um, tanneries in London, I'm sorry to be so London-centric, was uh, Bermondsey. Mm. And- uh, I didn't know that. So there were tanneries there in, what, 19th century. century. Yeah. So, yeah. really st- kicking off in the early 19th century. And they were built around um, around one of the offshoots of the Thames, which is the River Neckinger. And the River Neckinger, because you need water to clean the leather, and you needed to be close to forests to get the tannin from the, from the bark, which is required. That's, that's you know, vegetable tanning so to speak, non, non-chrome, uh, which is so harmful. And uh, it well, you also needed it because you need the animals to be there. So the cattle would be bought, there. you'd bring the cattle over from the north and from the south, and you would slaughter them on site, and the meat would be eaten, and the skins would then go to the tanneries. Mm. So... One thing we know absolutely for sure is it stank. Yeah, I have been to a tannery. Do you know what I mean? And it (laughs) was—it stank, but not only because it stank of that; it stank of human sewage as well. And the River Thames—a lovely combination. It's lovely. No, I'm sorry, we don't have kind of scratch a a, smell. Smell. Um, So that kind of connotation from that to turning it into something absolutely extraordinary in terms of lu- luggage mm. and travel or boots is fascinating. Like, that is, I think, where the luxury comes from. Leather's really a difficult subject.
0: I think because maybe we're thinking of it in a very narrow, yeah,
1: well, Western-centric sense. Yeah, that's what I was worried about, my thinking sense. as well. That's why I thought, yeah. hang on, hang on, scrap this. I mean, you know, so much brilliant leather comes from from North Africa and, you know, from India. You think of those traditions, etc. I mean, it's, and everybody wore leather. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just because going back hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years that leather was a luxury project, uh, product, but it was also incredibly pragmatic. It mm-hmm. was a practical thing, and it goes back a very long way. And unpacking leather is, so to speak... Is, is so multi-layered.
0: So where does Mulberry fit into this history of leather? We've got Alex Fury, esteemed fashion features director of another magazine and menswear editor of the Financial Times, to tell us about how Mulberry, founded as a leather goods company in the UK in 1971, got its cool factor. I'm so happy that you've come out from underneath your fashion archives. Very
2: happy to be here with you always, Susie. Thank you for asking me.
0: So what's your personal overriding memory or impression of Mulberry when when you were growing up?
2: I think I always knew of Mulberry as kind of a classic heritage brand. It was always something that felt kind of very sort of quintessentially British um, and you related it to that sort of... English country pursuit mm. style that I think they established in the 1970s. Obviously, I was looking at it more in the 90s. And I think by that point, it had become kind of something incredibly classic, something really timeless already by then. Um, it was that sort of Scotch guard pebbled leather, mm. uh, the brass locks, things that were very kind of hardy and um, practical, uh, you know, everlasting pieces. But as someone obsessed with fashion, it really first kind of resonated with me in, I guess, in a wanting to own it kind of way when they worked with Luella Bartley and mm. produced the Giselle, because that was such a big moment, I think, for, for Luella, who I was an enormous fan of. I
0: mean, what was it about, you know, Luella working with Mulberry that made it made, you know, that moment so iconic? Because like she wasn't. I, it was the, a standalone collaboration, I believe. Yes,
2: it was. It was and, for the, and I don't think they called it the Giselle. I think that's just what it, it came it to became, be called. It became, yeah. Because obviously um, Giselle Bunchen was the model that carried it on the catwalk. And it was this interesting period because Luella had been showing in London, then she'd shown in Milan, and then she moved to Par- uh, to New York. And this was her second New York show, And it was, for me, it's interesting because obviously it's it's in New York, but it felt very much like this kind of exporting of Britishness and this whole kind of uh, sort of super cool um, London fashion moment that was happening around the turn of the millennium. Actually, the kind of generation after Alexander McQueen and Hussein Shalayan. But, you know, you had people like um, Luella and Marcus Lupfer, uh, Mm. Russell Sage, the early days of Roland Murray, um, kind of
0: also giving, yeah, that British, I guess, British style, like a different slant that was like not not just not conceptual or, or highfalutin, but like accessible and witty exactly. and fun.
2: and the Luella's stuff, I think, was really interesting because there were all these references to kind of tropes of Britishness. You know, mm. her first collection was called um, Daddy, I Want a Pony and was based on kind of Sloan Rangers. Then there was stuff based on The Clash in the 70s, um, stuff based on skinheads. And then really moving to New York and collaborating with Mulberry was about an exploration of another kind of facet of that Britishness. Mm. And also when you look at it, I think the bag just looked great Mm. and still looks really great now. You know, the quality was amazing. It was that kind of bridal leather, you know, that sort of link to saddlery, which is is such a kind of inspiration for Mulberry, but really kind of um, reinvented. in a different way. Well, also it was a bit like, you know, it was like a Mulberry bag in bondage. And I think it really sort of.
0: Oh, with all the. You mean all the buckles and the rivets? Exactly, and the stuff. rivets
2: and the straps. And I think it really kind of. Even though Mulberry had always been there as kind of a luxury heritage brand, this was really kind of kickstarting it and kicking it onto the catwalk. And so it started to resonate with me then. And then obviously, a couple of years after that, you had the Bayswater.
0: Yeah. Um, and then obviously, Stuart... Yes. Coming in, it became. It, it, started that era of creative directors well it's interesting because
2: Stuart worked with talking of that London junior style mafia you had kind of Giles Deacon and um Katie Hillier Luella and Stuart Stuart Vivas Vivas. who was part of that because he he'd been working at other fashion houses but they were all friends together and so then you know he worked with Luella on that bag and then later on ended up becoming creative director of Mulberry so I think there's something very interesting about that whole kind mm. of story and and again about it all of a sudden connecting in a different way with a different audience that's really when Mulberry became something that I wanted you know because it became you know fashionable at that point
1: point. Mm.
0: and then I guess how does that lead to what Mulberry stands for today you know working with the likes of Priya Alualia Nicholas Daly um, in terms of like I guess their their history of of collaborating with designers,
3: well, I think
2: when you think about it that first collaboration with Luella really sets the tone for what Mulberry was doing in in twenty twenty one and today you know tied in with its fiftieth anniversary it's this idea of kind of supporting young talent that you believe in, and I think also maybe for Mulberry to get a different perspective on their heritage, on their iconography on what they've done and where where they can go with sort of Mulberry style. It's always interesting when someone comes in and kind of remixes what you do and and gives you a, a different point of view on your own history, on your own archive. And I think when you look at what Priya and Nicholas and, and Richard are doing, it's very much that. It's about how can we sort of reenergize mm. um this, you know, this sort of heritage luxury brand how can we put a different slant on it it isn't changing the core values but it's kind of looking at it from a different angle
0: Mm, and there's a real link between obviously all the three of those designers with their work with like regenerative materials and just their sort of more I guess more holistic way of looking at fashion
2: well I think that's a big reset that's happened across fashion as a whole I think it's across designers um across manufacturing and also across consumers it's something consumers are interested in people are asking about where things are coming from people are asking about sourcing they want kind of transparency in a supply chain i don't think it's a um a gesture i think people are genuinely interested Mm. in those kind of things now in you know and it helps inform decisions about what you're going to buy versus you know people want to buy things that are good And good doesn't just mean as a physical object. I think people want things that are good for the environment and that does inform their decision-making. You know, I think with young designers, this is maybe a bit cliche to say, but like responsible practice is kind of like a sewing machine. It's something they have to use to make their clothes and it's really sort of second nature. It's not something people are consciously thinking about It's just the way they make clothes.
0: Mm, It's completely ingrained into them from the get-go. Exactly. Um, So how would you say Mulberry fits into the 21st century luxury landscape? I mean, because I think luxury, and especially in leather goods, has undergone such dramatic changes in the past 30 years.
2: I think it's interesting when Mulberry was first founded in the 70s, these kind of French magazines all talked about the steel anglaise, like the English style, and saying that that was, for them, what Mulberry represented. And I think when you follow the thread through to today, that's still something that's very important, this idea of, of Englishness, Britishness. Um, and I think what's tied in with that is creativity, you know, the, the creativity you see reflected in those young mm. designers as well um a respect for materials um a real focus on craftsmanship things that are made to be kind of passed down the idea of kind of future heritage pieces this idea that a, a mulberry bag will outlast you which is mm. really tied in with things like uh you know several role tailoring uh, mm. the idea that a- you know a man's jacket would outlive him i think that's very much part of the kind of mulberry ideology um alongside this kind of resonance with sort of creativity and youthfulness. Um, so, it you know, it's a very sort of interesting mix of those different elements. I also think it's really friendly. I think mm. that's a very interesting thing. because like, Do
0: you think that's a British trait? Because I was yes. thinking about how do you differentiate, you know, say like a British luxury house from a French one, let's say.
2: I think there's... I don't want to denigrate a French luxury house, but I think there's a warmth and a friendliness to Mulberry, which there is this kind of Just openness. natural nature. Yes, you know, but but also this kind of... Um, I think there's also, you know, people talk about coming here and it being, you know, coming to, to Britain and it being warm and friendly, very open, open to ideas, open to different cultures. And I think you get that sense with, with Mulberry. Again, certainly there's a kind of inclusivity in terms of... Um, that there isn't that kind of elitism that i think you get with a lot of luxury brands Mm. and i think you can see how it sort of uh, how that's reflected in the fact that for many people that you know the first kind of luxury leather bag they get is a mulberry bag there's and then lots of people stay incredibly loyal to mulberry all the way through their lives there there is a kind of connection to the brand i think that's very powerful that kind of emotional resonance that Mm. sort of um
0: the idea of heirloom as well and yes. family and passing down. Well, it's, all, it's
2: something you can trust. So it's interesting that when I'm, you know, these ideas of kind of friendliness, comfort, trust, they're quite sort of human traits. Mm. And I think there's something, you know, it's interesting that I think all of that is kind of tied together in, in why Mulberry continues to resonate and, and what Mulberry really means today.
0: So obviously I know you own an extensive fashion collection
2: crippling collection of thousands (laughs) of garments
0: are there any vintage mulberry bags you wish you owned or do you own in fact
2: i have one of the mulberry luella bags i've got a i've got a bayswater um and i've got an amberley one of the more modern mulberry bags um but the, the Luella bag I have is actually a subsequent model when the, the style became part of kind of Luella's canon as opposed to one of the original Mulberry ones. And I've got a real fetish for uh, things at the very start to try and get the kind of the prototype, the first, the, the debut, because it tends to be the best version of things. Um, and I would really love to have one of those early, early Luella Mulberry Giselle bags. I think it's Luella for Mulberry is the way that they're kind of uh, labelled. And the thing is, they still look amazing. The leather's wonderful. You know, it's unlined leather. So it's very sort of, it's very pure in terms of its form. Um, It's incredibly well made. You know, these bags are still kind of knocking around 20 years later. And it feels like it's a real sort of moment in fashion a real moment for luella a moment for mulberry a moment for fashion Mm. generally and those kind of moments interest me you know i always want to have something that's very representative of the time in which it was created that's kind of a reflection of that particular moment um so yeah i would love to get hold of one of those original obviously if it's the one that was on the catwalk held by giselle that would be great (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's not an absolute requirement for it to be that kind of hallowed a piece.
0: Not specific at all, but maybe you might find it on the Mulberry Exchange on their website where they are selling secondhand bags.
2: I have heard of this and it is being added to my kind of constant arsenal of uh, resellers, secondhand, vintage, the constant churn of searching through to try and find these special things. All your sources. You know, I think it's interesting that you now have this kind of This legitimised resale resale, pre-loved market, pre-loved, and this idea that you know, obviously someone has authenticated it. You can get hold, and even things like a lot of the time it's a nightmare to search for specific styles. But obviously, when it's through a brand, they know the styles, and it's kind of it's kind of it's sort of ideal for like geeks like me who want to look, or even you know, I think a lot of women. Uh, and men as well will have specific styles of bags that they want to search for and they know the name and they know the colour and they know the type of leather that they want. Um, And so I think these things are really engineered for that kind of accuracy, for that specificity.
0: But of course, this desirable image of Mulberry would be nowhere without the craftspeople based at their two factories in Somerset, the beating heart of the brand. I got in touch with Amy Hunt, who has worked at The Rookery, Mulberry's original factory, for a decade. Amy Hunt is their raw materials technologist. She's also part of the quality team and she's the key link between the tanneries and production. Amy is responsible for ensuring all leather leaving Mulberry tanneries meets quality expectations and spends a lot of time inspecting the skins. She also works with Mulberry's UK factories to educate them on the characteristics of each leather article and advises the cutters on how to work with the leather. Have you noticed like a kind of attitude shift towards the production of Mulberry's leather in your time at the rookery?
3: Yes, definitely. Um, obviously, as we a brand that's been quite around for quite a while, we obviously have partners that we've worked with a long, long time. Hoffman's being one of them. But when it comes to sourcing new, new um, products and new tanneries, there's definitely been a shift in. We need. We would like our tanneries to be have some sort of environmental accreditation, and we're now at eighty eight percent. So eighty eight percent of our tanneries now have this in place. Um, and we're confident by the, end of the, um, by the end of this year that we'll hit 100%. So that means that, you know, the tannery is a lot more conscious of their carbon footprint, of um, traceability of the hides, um, sustainability, um, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, there's definitely, definitely been more of a focus on that. And also, you know, mm-hmm. the, not containing any restricted substances, which is something we also test for on a regular basis. So, yeah, a huge shift
0: and in terms of how the rookery works itself, has have you seen the shift in how mulberry you know evolves has evolved in its approach to working with the leather once it's at the rookery or the willows you know example, for example, with different kinds of tech or, or machinery?
3: The initial processing is quite similar that it all of our leather is inspected. So 100% of our leather is, ins- is inspected before it comes onto site. And we also have our lab now, our quality lab, which is based at the Rookery. So we, we test every single batch um, that comes in. So that's great because we have all the machinery on site. So we can do that rather than having to send it externally. We also have azund machines, which are automatic cutting machines. So it's obviously it's a lot less labor intensive um, and it means that we can utilize the leather a lot more and we also no longer use kind of exotic leathers either. Mm. But at the end of the day, you know, it's the craftspeople on the lines that still work with the leather, you know, still handle the leather. And I think that's what makes Mulberry so special as a brand.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I've seen those kind of machines where they, they're kind of cutting, like yes. doing cutting to eliminate waste, right? Because they do, like, they, cu- they cut yeah. like, as close to one another. So, like, each piece <clears throat> is as close to one another, yeah, so, possible so that you don't have a, like all these off cuts
3: no exactly so what happens is um the skins are marked up as normal by you know the craftspeople and then they are placed on the bed and the panels for that particular bag that's being made are like auto nested so the machine calculates it to auto nest it in the most efficient way that utilizes the area the best before before the skins are cut one of the important parts of the uh,
0: factory is the lifetime service center have yeah. you kind of seen that grown over the years like in terms of people's interest in maintaining the quality of their mulberry bags and maintaining the yeah the lifeline of 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 their of their mulberry products
3: yeah the lifetime service center is is great and it offers a huge range of repairs and also now restorations um, to the bags, which customers obviously request and then send in to us, and it just means that you know it just prolongs the life of that bag that that much longer. Um, we have a huge archive of hundreds of different leathers and different colours which have been collected over the the seasons and the years to ensure that we can offer you know an exact match, or if not an exact match, a really really close match to the to the leather that you know the customer's bag is made of and that they that they're requesting. The repair, whether it's you know they they can take apart a whole bag and restitch it back together, you know to replace a zip, or now that they can, if a customer wants to change a colour of a bag, that's also possible, depending on which way they want it to go. As long as it's from um, light to dark, that's also an option for them if they if they fancy a change, just so that you know they can prolong the life of what of the product that they already have. Oh, okay, so it's
0: not like just about kind of simple repairs, it's actually like changing the whole look of a bag as yes. well.
3: Yes, yeah, exactly. So yeah, so it's not, it's as much repairs as they can do. And you know, they're great in there, they have all the expertise, you know, to carry out the certain repairs. But yeah, they have the restoration as well now, which is to help, you know, re- try and repair or, you know, nourish or recolor leather that's, you know, over time something might have happened, Your will know, or got damaged. So yeah, that's definitely options that can be looked at as well for the, for the customer.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us from, from okay. the workery. Thanks for joining me on the first episode of the Mulberry Podcast. Hit subscribe to hear future episodes and join me next time when we'll be talking about the pleasure of leather, why we love it so much, and how it forms a part of our daily wardrobe. Made to Last is a co-production between Mulberry and Danielle Radoitchin at In Talks With. The theme music and sound design is by Warren Borg at Wargy Productions. To find out more about Mulberry and its Made to Last manifesto, as well as its sustainability goals, head to mulberry.com or join the conversation online via at mulberryengland on Instagram. Until next time, I'm Susie Lau and you can find me on at Suzy Bubble on IG as well.